chapter 5, and we have been talking about justification for the last several weeks, and we, um, we're going to continue in that as Paul's argument in this passage for justification continues. Um, this, is not a, this is not a light passage. It's not an easily uh, understood passage. Uh, we're going to dive right into the, the heart of it this morning, and I'm excited and just pray that God would uh, speak to us through his word and that he would get me out of the way and, uh, and somehow illuminate by his spirit, speak to our hearts through this inspired word of God. And uh, there are some powerful truths that, that really rise from this passage that have great impact on the reality of our life and death. This is a life and death passage. And uh, so let's pray that God would use his word this morning as he does, as only he can do. God, we just thank you for your word, the inspired word of God that you have given us, that somehow uh, shows us who you are and who we are and how we're to relate to you and how we're to relate to each other. You've spoken through this word that is so powerful and that has the ability to cut through all the mess of our life and, and speak to us. And this morning, we open our hearts to your word. We ask that you would change us, change me this morning. We ask that you would draw us to yourself, that you would uh, light it up in our hearts in a way that if it's familiar to us, in a way that we've never seen it before, that the truth of it would be made known to us as we can't see it on our own. We need you to help us see the truth of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, if you could turn there. We're going to read it together this morning and, uh, and see what the Lord would say. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness 
leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. We quote that passage often after we read from the scriptures. And I think the reason that we do is, is important. And I don't know that it's, it's even a conscious reason that we've thought of. I, I know Kevin DeYoung preached on this passage and it was famously kind of spread through YouTube. But, but the reality of that passage, I think, is important for us as a church. Particularly as we approach a passage like this in Romans 5. And you say, well, why aren't we preaching easy stuff about how we can have really cool lives and, make, and be happy and, and like seven, seven ways to have a happier life or a better life? Why are we preaching in, in the depths of Romans 5 into the heart of, of the doctrine of, of, of in, impunity? Why are, we, why are we preaching these types of things? And, and, and the reason is, long after we're forgotten, the grass withers, the flower fades, our lives are like grass that is, it flares up and it dies. Long after we're forgotten, long after we're gone, the word of God lasts forever. Amen? It's the word of God that remains. We can come up with clever tricks and neat church things and, you know, and do things to draw crowds in or whatever or, or build some pulpit that where people love to come hear people speak and, wow, have you ever heard that guy preach? Ever heard that guy preach? None of that matters. Long after we're forgotten, it's the word of God that remains forever. Amen? The truth of the word of God, not clever thoughts I bring to it or someone else brings to it, but what does the word of God say and how do I adjust my life to that is what really matters. That's what lasts forever. So here we are in Romans 5. And this is not an easy doctrine. This is not an easy, uh, an easy passage to read. This, this doctrine of imputation, as it's called, is, is, is some, sometimes widely debated. But it's essential. And I think it's important for each of us to hear this this morning. Paul has been building this argument that we saw in the 16th century the reformers grab a hold of and bring back to life as the word of God had, this, this had, had in some way been lost in the church. And we saw Luther scramble back to this. this. This doctrine of imputation, the reality of justification by faith alone, sola fide, justification by faith alone is essential to the gospel. And essential to that is this idea of imputation. And we see this comparison where, where one man's sin was imputed to everybody, and yet one man's righteousness is also imputed to those who are in Christ. This is a powerful, powerful concept that we have to grasp from the Word of God. It's essential to the gospel. So here we are in Romans 5. And, uh, and as we read it together, let's, uh, let's experience the joy of this incredible doctrine together. Romans 5, verse 12, starts with, therefore, just as 
sin came into the world through one man, the death, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so we jump back and we see Paul building this argument of justification. And from Romans 1 verse 17 all the way through up until now, Paul has been building this argument. We've seen that, that, that uh, righteousness comes through faith and that, that in Romans 3 all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. He built through Romans 2 the idea that, that, that sin is pervasive, not just for Gentiles, but also for Jews. And he culminates in Romans 3 saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we see the building of this, this problem, the recognition that we have an issue. Our greatest issue in life is sin. And, and so we move into Romans 4 and Romans 5 and we see the idea that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see in Romans 3 that, that, that he is just, he's a just God, and he's also the justifier, meaning in his justice he must punish sin. The, the penalty for sin is death, but he's also the justifier because, because God, because Jesus Christ became our wrath-absorbing substitute, and he experienced and absorbed all of God's wrath for sin, and, and, and therefore we're now justified. And in this courtroom of God's of God's judgment, where God, the greatest judge, the greatest courtroom, as he looks at the sacrifice of Christ and Christ's righteousness, if you're in Christ, he declares you not guilty, you're justified. And Paul's been building this argument, right? And we've been talking about it. What a powerful concept. And so he continues on here in verses 12 through 21, explaining this justification, this decree of not guilty. All the implications of justification, where we see that, that God showed his love in this. How powerful was that last week? And Mike declared uh, through the word of God here, that, that, and how many of us experience this, for any who would doubt love, for any who would mis, misdefine love, what an overused word in our society, right? I mean, I love God, I love my parents, I love my children, I love pizza, I, I mean, we say the word love in so many different contexts that are so disproportional, right? I do love pizza. <clears throat> and God defines it. If you ever misunderstand it, if you ever subjectively feel as though you're outside of it, and you, I don't know if anyone loves me, I don't know if God loves me, I don't feel like God loves me today because I'm not performing well. Because I didn't do what I was supposed to do this morning when I woke up. Because I haven't fulfilled these boxes that I've created that I need to check to be someone who God could love. Or because I failed or because I sinned. And so many times in our subjective uh, failures and in our lives we question the love of God. And, and Romans declares that God displayed his love in this. That while you were a sinner, while I was a sinner, Christ died for us. How powerful is that? We see displayed the objective reality, historic truth. We see displayed in a historic, objective way the love of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. You can reach outside of any subjective feeling about how you may be doing today or what you're struggling through today, and you can hold on to the anchor and the objective truth and historic reality that God displayed his love in this. While you were a sinner, while I was a sinner, he died. On that cross. It's true. It doesn't change. It's objective. You can hang on to the anchor of that. 
and realize that, that God has demonstrated love in this ultimate sacrifice that brings us through which we have this justification, this not guilty verdict, regardless of our own sin. Paul's continuing to build on this, and he makes in this passage kind of a remarkable comparison. See, he comes into this passage and he begins to compare Adam to Jesus. And what we see first is that Jesus Christ is superior to Adam. What we see in this comparison is that Christ is superior. His, uh, Adam's sin was reckoned or transferred or imputed to the entire human race. And we see Jesus, his obedience, the obedience of Christ is parallel but superior to the disobedience of Adam. We see that, that the righteousness imputed to those in Christ is parallel, but it's superior to the sin that was imputed to those in Adam. We see that the life that comes to us through Christ, to those who are in Christ, this imputed righteousness, it's superior to the death that comes to those who are in Adam. So we see this comparison of Adam and Jesus, but what we see clearly in this passage is that Christ is superior to Adam. So starting in verse 12, this idea of sin that comes to us through Adam, it's imputed to us through Adam. And you go back to Genesis 2.17 and you see, um, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you, you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we see this idea that, that sin and death enter the world through the sin of Adam. And it's imputed to everybody. This, this is pretty significant, that, that Adam, the, the, the first man, is a, a representative of all that would come after him. And, and in his sin, we have all sinned. In Adam's sin, it's his death enters the world, and, and his sin is imputed to everybody who comes after him. Now, some may say that's not fair, right? What do you mean I sinned in Adam? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. And what we see is that Adam is the representative of all mankind. Augustine and Pelagian have this debate. And Augustine makes a couple of statements about the reality of original sin in Adam. And he says that Adam had the ability to not sin and the ability to sin. And Adam had the ability to not die and yet the ability to die. But all of those after Adam, everyone who comes after Adam, did not, this is a double negative, but follow me, did not have the ability to not sin. And all of those who come after Adam did not have the ability to not die. When Adam sinned, all, it was imputed to all of mankind, everyone who would come after him. Death entered the world so that everyone born after Adam did not have the ability to not die. And, and lest there be any confusion, Paul, before he makes the comparison in this passage to Jesus, he, he clears something up. 
And I think it's important for us to look at it. Take a look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And then he does not jump right into the comparison of, of, of Christ at this moment. He then goes on to continue to clarify what could be misunderstood by reading that first verse. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. This is huge right here. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Think about this with me for a moment. There's a difference between original sin and the sin imputed to us from the sin of Adam and active sin, which is a violation of the reality of the law once we realized it. And that's important. Because you say to yourself, well, so I was, I was born in sin. I did not have the ability to not sin, and I did not have the ability to not die from the moment I was born before I ever even actively violated the law of God. And the answer to that question is yes. Sin, through Adam, became a problem for everybody. And now everybody was going to die. When a child, say, why do babies die? Why do young kids die? Death entered the world through the sin of Adam. And no one could avoid it. And before there's even active sin, before uh, there's even this understanding of the law of God and a will for violation of it, we're all born in sin and incapable of not sinning in this sinful state. That is how pervasive the total depravity of man is. That is how pervasive sin is as it's entered the world and spread to every, every human being. We are totally depraved and totally sinful, and it's laid out here in this passage in Romans chapter 5. Because of Adam, sin was imputed to us. This is important to understand because this comparison doesn't work until we understand that reality. And you say to yourself, well, well, I didn't do anything yet, but yet I'm sinful because of Adam. Yes, but wait. The comparison is about to bring great news and great joy. Amen? So sin has entered the world through Adam. It's pervasive. Death has entered the world through Adam. It's pervasive. And then verse 14 says, Adam is a type of Christ. What does that mean? Adam is a symbol. Adam is a, is a shadow. Adam is an example of Christ. Adam here is being compared to Christ. And sometimes as you take you know, the, the, what they call the, the first Adam and the last Adam, and, and you compare things, you begin to see the beauty and the differences. And that's what Paul's doing here in his argument. He's saying, in the first Adam, sin entered the world, and it was imputed. It was given to all mankind because Adam sinned and fell. The entire world fell, and sin and death entered the world, and no one could avoid it. Everyone was touched by it. Everyone who was born after Adam was touched by this sin, and it was unavoidable. But he is a type, he is a symbol, he's an example, he's a comparison to Christ. And so now let's look at Christ. As, as Adam was an example, a foreshadowing, a comparison, we begin to see more detail. I think we find that to be true in 
in life, right? When you compare things, sometimes you see the beauty. Like me and my brother look a lot alike. My brother's older than me. But people, you know, people all the time say, confuse us. I've had people walk up to me, and, and literally about 30 to 45 seconds into the conversation, I realize the reason I have no idea who this person is is because they think I'm Chris. <clears throat> and then I don't have the heart to tell them. I just pretend I'm Chris for the rest of the conversation. But, but if we were to ever stand next to each other, and you were to compare us viewing the two of us next to each other, I'm a little taller, he's thinner and in better shape, I'm better looking, right? So if you, were to, if you were to put us next to each other, you begin to see the detail come out, right? Um, I'm not really. I just, but comparison sometimes enables us to see the beauty in the differences. He's not going to listen to this. Just make sure. <clears throat> so Adam's a type of Christ. Christ is superior to Adam. The first man sinned, so all have sinned. Let's go on to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen? So here we have Adam has sinned, and sin has been imputed to all of mankind. And you say, but even before I sinned, yes, even before you sinned. Even before I actively violated the law, yes, because sin and death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law was even given. And so Paul clarifies that point, lest we be confused. It wasn't just the fact that once the law was given, I actively sinned, and now sin is imputed to me? No. Because between Adam and Moses, sin and death reigned for everybody. So sin was imputed regardless of what you did or regardless of what you didn't do. And the doctrine of sin, to understand original sin, is so important. You know why? Because the comparison is this, that Jesus Christ died in his righteousness, his Philippians 2, uh, obedience unto death on a cross, in the righteousness of his life, in the reality of his wrath-absorbing death, is also imputed to those who are in Christ regardless of what you do. Amen? She said, I didn't do anything yet, but sin was imputed to me. Yes, and also Christ's death and righteousness is even more so, in a superior way, imputed to those who are in Christ. So you say this morning, I've failed, I've fallen short, I keep screwing up, but yet my faith alone is in Christ, and his righteousness, regardless of your action, is imputed to you, and you're justified, amen? This is Paul's argument. This is Paul's argument. We have this so flip-flop sometimes in our theology, where we come to Christ and we say, well... 
I really love Jesus and, and I want to serve him. And so if I really pray hard and if I show up to church every Sunday and if I check these boxes and if I treat people this way and I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that, maybe somehow I can muster up enough works for God to love me. And the gospel of Jesus Christ rejects that and says, no, you're a sinner. You are incapable of not sinning. You are incapable of not dying. Sin is imputed to you. But if you're in Christ, Jesus has done it all on your behalf for you, regardless of your works. Amen? Sola fide, by faith alone. You bring nothing to the table. But your reliance on Christ, your faith in his righteousness is imputed to you. Amen? This is good news. Paul, continuing this argument of justification, uh, goes further in describing the depravity and the lostness of us in sin but the incredible rescue and love of Jesus Christ in his righteousness that's imputed to us, not by works, that anyone should boast. Amen? Therefore, one, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men who are in Christ. It's an important point. The implications of this for you and I are huge this morning. As you come uh, to recognize through the word of God the state of, of your own heart before God, as you read through Romans in the beginning and you begin to recognize the depth of your own sin as if you didn't recognize it before, and begin to recognize your position in relationship to God. As Romans 4 talked about, as we see our position to God is at enmity with Him. And is an enemy of Him. And in our sin we've rejected Him. As you contemplate the reality of that in your life, the reality of that piece of the gospel, I think it's important. As you struggle in your weariness to achieve, as you struggle in your weariness to live this Christian life and to, and to do the right thing all the time and, and, and experience the, the accusations of the enemy in the reminders of your failure, in the areas where you consistently fall short, as you struggle through that, and recognize that, that there's activity of God in your life because you're actually even concerned about it, right? And you're feeling the weight of your sin. And you say, why? Why do I keep failing? Why do I keep struggling? Why do I keep doing this over and over again? When I, 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 as Paul said, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Anybody been there? And in the midst of that struggle, we recognize from Paul's argument here that we are lost in sin. That sin entered the world and we're bent. Yes, we have a will, but our will is bent and we're in incapable of unbending it on our own. And, and my decisions and the choices I make are bent by sin. Bent by selfishness, bent by, by self-reliance, bent by the reality that in Adam, all have sinned and it's been imputed. And, and, and so as I live this life, I, I'm living in the midst of this 
reality and struggling through it. And so as I ask the question, why? I, I, I see in Romans chapter 5 that we are utterly sinful. I see in Romans chapter 5 that, that, that I can't escape this on my own. I see in Romans chapter 5 that my consistent effort in this regard is, is incapable of accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. I see in Romans chapter 5 that I can't fix this problem on my own and that, that I need to somehow come to an end of myself. And the reality of the doctrine of sin as we see it here in Romans chapter 5 is important for all of us to understand because for us to understand the good news, we need to get a grasp in our minds and in our hearts of the reality of the bad news, right? This is not readily accepted in our culture. The idea that anyone does anything wrong anymore. Or that anyone's responsible for their actions anymore. But we see in the word of God, in the truth of the word of God, that we're sinful. And that we're bent. And that we're incapable of mustering up enough goodness to fix it. In Adam, all have sinned. And death reigns. So you ask yourself the question, well then why do I worship? Why do we come into this place? Do we sing the songs that we've sung? Why do I have any hope? How could somebody as bent as me and as corrupt as me and as incapable of choosing good day to day as me, how could someone like me come into a place where I'm okay with God? How is it that I could have peace with a perfect and a holy God? How is it that I could be in a place where I could even enter the presence of a holy God and worship him? How is it that I could ever be accepted by God in, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my, my selfishness, in the midst of my wrong choices, in the midst of the reality of the pervasiveness of sin in my life, even, even before I was willfully acting in, in disobedience to the law? How? How? How do I have peace with God? How do I come into a place and, and stand in his presence and lift my hands and sing about his attributes and worship him? How do I begin to live a life that worships him, that displays his glory? How do I come into a place where I treat my wife in a way that, that, that displays the glory of God and that my marriage reflects, reflects the gospel and that, and that it becomes a picture of worship to God in the way that we outserve each other and live with one another? How do I come into a place where, where the way I treat my kids and raise my children somehow musters the ability to display the glory of God and, just, and to display what it means to shepherd and to, and to care for children? How do I get to that place? How is that even possible? And men, if, you, if you're here, there is, there is a side note. I think it's important. It's not the main point, but it's there. The men in the church here this morning pay close attention because Eve sinned first. Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate from the tree. But Paul didn't say everybody sinned through Eve. Sin was imputed to all mankind through who? Through Adam. Because he bore the reality of leadership and the weight of that.
we ask ourselves sometimes, a lot lately, how is it that we have young teenage boys walking into high schools and slaughtering their, their classmates? How is it that our culture has disintegrated to such a degree that, that that's even possible? That that would enter the mind of a young high school kid? How is it that we have degraded in our society to such a degree that, that, that self-control is, is, is almost completely eliminated in the lives of young people, that, that peace, that kindness, that, that patience is not pervasive in the lives of the people around us or in our, in our culture? I'm a part of a... Uh, in my vocation as a prosecutor, a part of a, a school safety task force with the mayor and the DA and uh, the county executive and the sheriff, and we've been sitting together with groups of people, psychologists and teachers and superintendents and political leaders, and talking about what do we do. The whole time I'm sitting there, I'm just thinking, door stops are great. Sure, we could talk about whether gun control will work or not. We talk about special glass on the outsides of the schools. Makes it difficult to get in. Talk about like the locks that just lock, you know, the Matt Lauer lock. Just hitting it locks the doors. Um, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and all those things I think are important. But we have, we have an issue where men have completely abdicated their responsibility in their homes to teach and shepherd their families. To teach the gospel to their children. To, as the passage, as the word of God says, to water their wife like a, like a flower. To, to, to train their children. How many men are sitting in their homes at dinner sharing the gospel and doing family worship with their wives and with their children today, every day? How many men are, are, are taking it as their primary responsibility in life to know the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and to in turn shepherd and preach it and minister it to their wife and to their children? Is that even happening in our culture today? A bigger question for us this morning is, is it happening in the church? Are men worshiping with their families? Are men taking it as their primary responsibility to share the gospel with their kids? So we see this massive question in the beginning of this comparison. In the midst of sin, in the midst of the failure of leadership, sin has been imputed to everybody, and in the midst of this lostness, how can it change? How can it get better? And what we see is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ on display in the comparison of Adam to Christ. That Jesus Christ came. That Jesus, the last Adam, the representative, like Adam, but better, superior, the last Adam came and he lived a righteous and a perfect life. Jesus came 
the last Adam, fully God and fully man, and in in our place, he absorbed the righteous wrath of God for all sin, for all saved up from Adam to the end of the world, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, and he absorbed it on our behalf on the cross, so you don't have to. And Jesus, through this righteousness, through this obedience, and through this sacrifice and resurrection, has now, as the last Adam, imputed to us his righteousness so that someday, if you're in Christ, when you stand before God, he doesn't look at you and see all of the mess-ups and all of the sin, but he looks at you and sees Jesus. Amen? This is the good news of the gospel, of justification, that God would look at me And he would say in the courtroom, the only courtroom that matters, he would say, not guilty, because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. As we've said before, you know, who would accuse you? What courtroom or what judge would they go to when the God of the universe has declared you not guilty because of Jesus? Amen? Amen? As we recognize this reality, we now have the ability in Christ through his work and activity in our lives to live and pursue a faithful life of worship, not so that our works would somehow add to this finished work of justification, but in response to the reality of the justifying work of Jesus Christ, we now begin to pursue a faithful life of worship. Amen? So let's not get that backwards. You don't pursue a faithful life of worship to earn brownie points with God because somehow if you do a whole bunch of stuff, he's going to like you better. That's not what the gospel says. But in light of the reality of the justification and the finished work of Jesus Christ that's been imputed to you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done, you now, in response to that, begin to live a faithful life of worship and to display the glory of God as the primary pursuit of your life and your affections. Amen? That's what God's calling us to. Justification is at the heart of the gospel. Paul has spent several chapters arguing for it. And we, as a church should look closely at it and let the sparks of the cross of Jesus Christ and the reality of his finished work and his justifying work begin to fall off onto our lives so that we begin to recognize this reality and it motivates us to begin to pursue him. It motivates us to begin to to live as this uh, becomes the primary um, reality of our affection. If Jesus Christ has justified you and his righteousness is yours as a free gift, regardless of what you've done, is there some other joy in life you're pursuing that's better than that? Is the reality of that sinking into my heart, in my life, is somehow day to day I continue to pursue what? Entertainment, better food, a new Netflix show, uh, more money, a bigger house, a better car, a new PlayStation for my kids, whatever it is. 
We're so distracted by so many things that are such, such garbage. They're, they're of tomorrow's garage sales. They're such counterfeit things that, that have no comparison to the joy of the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ displayed here in this passage. And I, I realized this morning that I can't shout enough or yell enough or, or reach out you know, uh, verbally and shake you enough to have us grasp it. It just really takes the, 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 the work of God and the Spirit of God in our hearts through His Word to, to open up the, the reality of this joy. But I would challenge you this morning, as you look at the Word of God, to spend some time, focus on this. Spend some time and preach this to yourself. Spend some time in the reality of, if you're weary this morning, and if you're struggling this morning with failure, spend some time in the Word of God in this passage. And let it, let it ruminate in your heart. Let it change your perspective so that your heart begins to sing with the joy of the gospel in your life. If you're tired this morning and you feel like you are not loved in any way, Dive into this passage, dive into the Word of God, and preach it to yourself. Meditate on it, sit close to it, pray through it, and let the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ cause your heart to sing and worship to the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ to you. If you feel as though you have been pursuing things that would, you would put in front of God that would be sinful, spend some time in the Word of God, and let it change and adjust your perspective. The reality of justification in the life of a believer is so essential. And it's important for us this morning to realize a couple of things. Faith alone. The justification through faith alone. That you were lost in your sin. And Jesus accomplished the work on your behalf and his righteousness. In the same way sin was imputed to the world, if you're in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you, regardless of your work. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, we come this morning to your word and we see a comparison that depicts something so beautiful. We come to your word this morning and we see the reality of our own sin, but we see the reality of your righteousness, that you have solved the problem. We come to your word this morning and we see truth, and we ask that you would cause the truth to soak deep into our hearts. We ask that you would cause this truth to change us, that we would begin more and more to see the gospel for what it is, that we would begin more and more to see the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it is, it is the answer, it is the solution. And recognize this morning that it, it, it's not because of us, but because of you. That Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus 
Christ is the solution. God, help those who are weary to rest in it. And at the same time, help the reality of it to push us and motivate us to pursue it. To live faithful lives of worship. Not to earn your favor, but because you've already given it. Respond, that we would respond with gratefulness. That we would respond with worship. Not just in these songs to come. Not just in the Lord's table as we come to that this morning. But as we walk out of this place, worship you with our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.